Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Good morning. Good to see you guys all this morning. See this group of teens and young adults sitting in the front row, and just it's always a blessing to see youth and young adults at church and worshiping the Lord together. Uh, and also, it's just a painful reminder that September's coming and school's going to start again soon, people heading off to university, college, all of those life transitions that are going to be taking place. So uh, we'll be praying for youth and young adults as they return to school and, and education and things along those lines. Let's just pray together and then look into the Word of God. Dear God, I just thank you so much uh, for your faithfulness. Dear God, that uh, you are always working for our good in whatever situation you bring our way, Lord, whether it's uh, a blessing or a trial, Lord, you just are, are constantly walking with us, looking to bring us closer and closer to you. Father, as we look at our prayer of biblical proportion today, Lord, I just want to pr- ask, Lord, Lord, that you would just guide us, that you would just help us to understand the lessons that you have for us today. Uh, Lord, that you would just call us to a deeper relationship with you, and perhaps even today, uh, someone here or somebody online would be called and drawn into a personal relationship with you uh, for the very first time, dear God. So Lord, we just thank you. Thank you for the privilege of sharing your word and to worship together. Just thank you in your name. Amen. So this summer, we've been doing our series on prayers of biblical proportion, and we've seen uh, a number of of unique prayers uh, by individuals, prayers of people who were in desperate times, Jonah in the the belly of the great fish, and and Solomon last week in his prayer for wisdom, and uh, Job in his trial, and and all throughout these prayers, we've been seeing these individuals in times often of crisis, um, calling out to God and, and God responding to them. The prayer that we're going to look at today is a little bit different. Um, it's more of a prayer, a corporate prayer, a prayer on, that the Levites offered on behalf of the people of Israel, and that is in the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to open your Bibles to Nehemiah, uh, eventually we're going to land in Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, it might take us a minute to get there, uh, but the prayer that we're going to be looking at this morning is found in Nehemiah chapter 9. And as we go into this morning, just want to take a quick flyover of the book of Nehemiah so we get the context of what this prayer is about and why the people are praying this particular prayer when they are. Uh, and as we kind of make that progress through, we're going to see how the people rallied uh, to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. Then as we get to that actual prayer, we're going to see that the people took time to remember the greatness of God and his faithfulness to them. And they're also going to take the time to recognize the fact that despite his faithfulness and his goodness to them, they disobeyed him time after time after time. They walked away from him, they turned their back on him, they flat out rejected him. And they're going to take time to recognize that and to say, God, we are sorry for that. They're also going to recognize the fact that because of their disobedience, they realized that God reproved them, that he corrected them. And they're going to respond to that correction, and that will be our last part, is how do we respond uh, to the correction of God? So 
Let's just jump right in. The book of Nehemiah begins with Nehemiah serving uh, the king of Persia in, in the city of Susa. All right, and so I was curious uh, where Susa was, and if you Google it now, you can find it is near Sush, Iran, S-U-S-H, Iran, and this is where the Persian kings would spend uh, their winter months. And if you kind of look, you know, just take that satellite image of, of uh, a Google Earth or Google Maps or whatever, you can look and see that this is a very lush area. There's quite a bit of brown uh, desert around it or wilderness around it, and this this particular city, uh, there's a lot of green, lush growth around. So this is where the kings chose to spend uh, their winter months. And Nehemiah served as the king's cupbearer. And now when I was a a kid growing up in in Sunday school, you heard this this role that Nehemiah had as the king's cupbearer. And you kind of thought, okay, he was sort of like one of the expendable crewmen, you know, because as the cupbearer, if somebody was going to poison the king, well, they'd have to go through Nehemiah first. He would drink the wine, take a bite of the food, and if it was poisoned, he dropped dead, you know, or he would at least get very ill. And so I kind of always thought that his job wasn't that important. They'll just pick anybody off the street, put him there beside the king, and if, if he dies, well, we'll just pull another guy off the street and move along like that. At least the king wasn't assassinated. But we've come to find out, as I've come to find out as I studied, is that this job had a real um, trust built with the king had a lot of responsibility. In fact, the cupbearer was often one who, who would advise the king and would talk to the king about issues that, that the king was facing. And so, so this wasn't just a sort of a fly-by-night job, just pick anybody off the street. The king recognized Nehemiah's leadership. He recognized his character, and he made him the one who would stand closest to him. Uh, you know, and again, did make sure that the food wasn't poisoned and, and such like that. But it wasn't just sort of a, a fly-by-night job. It was, it was some, a, a very serious position, uh, a, a high and honored position. And so verse 1 of Nehemiah, it says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, that I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from, from Judah. Again, I've, I've read that verse a number of times, and I'm sure that you have. And so this week I was like, what kind of journey was that? You know, here, here's these guys coming to bring a report to Nehemiah. How, how, how much of a, of a trip was it? Was it a day? Was it a couple days? Was it just a short hike? So again, thanks to Google, uh, I found out that it would take approximately 314 hours to walk from Jerusalem, if you're walking, from Jerusalem to Susa. And it's about 1,555 kilometers to get from Jerusalem to, uh, to uh, Susa, where, where Nehemiah was. And so, again, it's just not an uh, easy trip. It wasn't like some guys just decided, hey, let's go see our brother and, you know, pick up for the weekend and go. This was a significant journey. And they came for the specific reason. They came to give Nehemiah a report of how things were in Jerusalem. And it says this, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so here, Nehemiah's concerned for his, his countrymen. He is an Israelite serving in, in Babylon, and he's curious, what is going on? How are the people doing? Some have escaped. Some have traveled back. Um, you know, are they doing well? Um, is the city well? And the report that he gets is, no, it's not in good shape. The, the walls are falling down. They're open to all sorts of attack. Um, it's just not a secure place to live, and the people themselves aren't doing very well. Nehemiah's response to that was, was very interesting. When I face a crisis, my first reaction is to go into do mode and to say, okay, what can I do? How do I meet this challenge? How do I face it? How do I, how do I deal with it? 
Nehemiah did something a little bit different, quite a bit different than me. It says this, that he wept, he fasted, and he prayed for many days. Interesting. There's a crisis. There's something going on, something that needs attention. And Nehemiah's response is, is not to go and to do right away. He's like, man, I got I to gotta pause. I got to pray. I got to ask God for wisdom. I got I to gotta make sure that I do the right thing. The next step that I take is the right one. And so he's done this for a while, and he's in the presence of the king, and the king says, hey, Nehemiah, you're, you're looking a little down. What's going on? And after days of praying, fasting, Nehemiah once again offers up a quick prayer. God, just, just help me to get this right. Help me to say this right. And then he presents to the king the situation in Jerusalem, and then he presents the plan that God had laid on his heart. He said, king, I want to go back, and I want to I rebuild those walls. And Nehemiah sort of responds, or tells us how the king responded. It says, and the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was upon me. So Nehemiah paused, prayed, fasted. There was a crisis, but he went to God first. And then he asked God, God, what do I do? He got the, got the, the leading of the spirit. The Lord told him what to do. And then he goes to the king. And the king, because God had prepared this, he said, okay, go ahead, travel back, rebuild the walls. And so that's what he did over the next few chapters. We're going to see that God uses Nehemiah to lead the people to rebuild the walls. And again, what was that like? What was that job like? And, and the walls, if we, if we look in, in history and in records of history, they were about four kilometers long, uh, the walls that went around the city. They were 39 feet high, 12 meters high, and two and a half meters or eight and a half feet thick. And the crazy thing is that these walls were rebuilt in as, as well as the gates in a matter of just 52 days. And again, how is that possible? It's possible because the good hand of God was upon Nehemiah. But not only that, it's because when Nehemiah came back and he presented the need to the people, the people stepped up. The people rallied around and said, we will rebuild this wall. If you look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, you can just see this family took this section of the wall. They did their job. Next one, this family took this section of the wall. They did their part. And all the way around, and so-and-so worked on the gates and, and all of these things. You know, and as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, how does this apply to our life? I just think about church sort of kicking off again in September. You know, for the past 18 months, there has been all across North America, all across the world, there's been shutdowns. There has been, you know, not allowed to gather, not allowed to, to be in church as we know it. And here at FBC, um, even not only the COVID uh, pandemic, but also the reshuffling of staff, it kind of leaves us going, okay, we're, we're ready to go for the fall. We're really excited to go for the fall, but there's still a need for people to step in. There's still a need for people to rally and say, man, God has placed us in Lloydminster for his glory, for the good of the people here, to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and encourage believers. And so each one of us in this room today has a part to play a role to play. If you look at Romans uh, chapter 12, it says this. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And I just like this summary. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
So today, if you are here, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a regular attender at FBC, Scripture says this, you have a gift from youth all the way up through seniors. We have been given gifts, a grace that's given to us. For what purpose? The the purpose is so that people can hear the gospel of Jesus. The purpose is so that God can be glorified. And if each person here steps into the role, uses that gift that God has given them, man, what a great impact we can have. Our ministries will continue. Our ministries will thrive. People will be doing things that they're passionate about because God has gifted them. And it will allow us to be more efficient in carrying the gospel to the town of, or the city of Lloydminster and to the communities around us. And so uh, I just would challenge you as we come into the fall, recognize that, that your being here is, is by God's plan, by God's design. The way that he has made you is part of his plan and his design. And that in order to help us fulfill the role that he has called us to do, each one of us needs to step up. It could be as simple as filling the teapot on Sunday morning when you arrive. It could be more complicated, like, hey, I'm going to be a small group leader for youth and, and walk through the trials of being a teenager uh, with, with young, young, young people. It could be that you're a great administration. There are some of those people in this world which I am not one. And if you would like to step up and help administrate something, I would be more than thankful to pass that on to you. You know, whatever gift God has given you, he's given you that for a reason, to enhance the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Lloydminster. And so we need to, as a church, rally together and see what great things God can do as we head into this fall. And I'm super excited about what God has for us in this coming year. As they rebuilt the wall, it wasn't smooth all the time. There was some skirmishes within and some some tension from without, but they continued to be uh, steadfast, to trust in the Lord, and eventually they did get that wall done in just 52 days. And then they jumped through and we we hit chapter 8. And chapter 8 is very interesting because there was this time of, of corporate worship. They stood together. They had the word of God read to them. They listened to the law, and they probably hadn't heard the law for years because they had been away in exile. And as they hear the law being preached to them, they responded, and they realized, man, we have disobeyed, we have sinned, and we've rejected God. And there was a sadness there, a repentance, or a genuine remorse for the sin that they had committed. And there was that period of remorse and confession, but then I want you to see Nehemiah 8, 10 to 12, and it, and it says this, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Again, there was this point of recognition of sin. There was this point of remorse and repentance. But then the spiritual leader stepped in and said, Okay, that's good. That's necessary. It's important. It's, it's so important that we make those confessions. But let's not stay in that remorse of, oh, I wish we hadn't have done that. Let's set our eyes forward. Let's look to the future and let's, let's rejoice that the joy of the Lord is our strength and see what God will do in the future, not looking back and saying, oh, man, I'm so sorry that happened. We need to learn our lessons and then we need to move on in the strength of the Lord and the joy of the Lord. So they, they actually went and celebrated. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, which had not been done for, for years um, in, in Jerusalem. They celebrated that time, but now at the beginning of chapter 9, 
the beginning of chapter 9, people are gathered again. And you'll see at the beginning, in the first few verses, it says that they've gathered and they've put on sackcloth and they've covered their head in dust. And again, this is a sign of, of humility before the Lord. This is them coming before the Lord and saying, God, we are subject to you. We want to serve you. We want to recognize our unworthiness and your worthiness. So their hearts were prepared. And again, they spent time reading the scripture. I believe it was three hours having the scripture publicly read to them. And then after that three hours of having scripture publicly read, there was this time of confession of sin. Again, recognizing God's greatness and their, their unholiness and their sinfulness. They spent the next three hours between confession and actually worshiping God together. And I think that would have been an amazing service, an actually, absolutely incredible service to respond to scripture and, and people as a whole. Just there confessing to God and then singing songs of worship to him. Just a very powerful morning. And then we see that this great prayer is offered up. We see that the, the, the priests, the Levites, stand before the people and they, they begin to pray this prayer. And again, it's a corporate prayer. I think the priests are, and the Levites are speaking on behalf of the people. And it's a long prayer, so we're not going you know, to take a look at every verse. But I want you to see there's three major themes that run through this prayer. There's three major themes that run through this prayer. And I just want to take a look at each one with you. And first of all, we want to see that the prayer is a celebration of God's sovereignty and goodness. It's a prayer of God's sovereignty of good and goodness. You can see that in Nehemiah 9, verse 6. This prayer begins and says this, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worship you. As this prayer begins, um, the, the, the Levites and the people take the time to recognize God's greatness and his goodness to them. The, the, the prayer opens with this phrase, you are the Lord, you alone. A couple months ago, I got a video from, from Amanda's cousin, uh, and it was a video of their four-year-old son, and he's asking me this question. He said, Bruce, does, does God have a last name? So I thought about that for a minute. I said, well, no, he doesn't have a last name but he has a number of different names that help us understand who he is. And as we look through Scripture, there's num numerous names for God that describe his character. Um, but here, the, the, the phrase that the people use, and this phrase that's often used by God to describe himself, this would be, if I was to simplify it, this is his big name. This is the name that really sums up his being. Many other names reference his character. This name, and, and you'll see it in Scripture with the capital L and then, uh, also capitalized O-R-D, so the, it's all caps, Lord. And this is this name, it's his I am name. It's just the sense that he is and his greatness and his glory. And John Piper lists 10 things that we can learn about God from this name. And this is what the people were recognizing as they prayed to him. God never has a beginning. He will never end. He's absolute reality. He is all that was eternally. No space, no universe, no emptiness, only God. Didn't understand that one for a minute, it took me a bit, but to understand that, that everything else flows from him. He is genuine reality, everything else is part of his creation. He is unique in the fact that he is self-existent. He is utterly independent. You think about the run of a day, the things that you're dependent on, air, food, water, encouragement, love, all of those things. And yet God, in his greatness, in his being, he's dependent on nothing. There's nothing, if everything stopped existing, he still would be, and he would be fine. 
He is totally independent. Everything that is not God depends totally on God. All the universe is by comparison to God as nothing. He is constant, never changes. He is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. He does whatever he pleases, and it is always right and always beautiful and always in accord with truth. He is the most important and most valuable reality and person in the universe. He is more worthy of interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment than all other realities, including the entire universe. Think about that. Think about the things that we focus on and that we are amazed by. And here, God in his I am, in his being, he is more, he's greater than anything that we could say. As I was preparing for this, uh, yesterday, just sitting in my office at home, there's a picture that hangs over, over my desk of, uh, of some, some landscape in Sedona, Arizona. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's absolutely fantastic. It's a beautiful spot. And I remember driving around there when we, when we first arrived, and my mouth just hanging open and just going, oh, this is awesome. This is amazing. And it was. It is. It's amazing. It's a demonstration of God's creativity, His glory, and all those things. But as awesome as that is, and as awesome as it was when we saw the Grand Canyon, God is far greater than that. When we see him face to face, when we know him personally, we will just be blown away when we see him in glory because nothing that we have ever seen or experienced here on earth will ever compare to his greatness and his glory. The people not only recognized how great he was, they also recognized the many things that he'd done for them over, over history. The calling of Abraham and forming the nation of Israel, hearing the cries of the children of Israel in Egypt and rescuing them from slavery of sin or slavery in Egypt, um, rescuing them at the Red Sea, establishing his law with them at Mount Sinai, leading them through the wilderness, providing them with food and water in the wilderness, leading them into the promised land and rescuing them from their enemies every time they, they kind of disobeyed and, and, and they were punished. And you see... As the people begin this prayer, and this prayer of biblical proportion, they, they did a very wise thing. They stopped, they recognized who God was, and they were thankful. And they reflected on who he is. I don't know about you, but so many times when I pray, I can rush into God's presence with all my requests and all my concerns and all of those things, and I really often don't take enough time or any time, to be honest at times, to recognize the one who I'm talking to. To recognize that when I bring this list of requests or these concerns to him, I, I stop to think about how great he is and how much potential he has to actually answer the prayers that I am praying. And I think it's so important that as we begin to pray, that we take time to reflect on his greatness, his goodness. You know, and I would challenge you this week, take a couple minutes and just say, I'm going I'm to set these two, three, four, five minutes aside. I'm going to set a timer. And I'll be honest, guys, I have a short attention span. I have to set a timer to discipline myself to pray. Otherwise, my mind is everywhere. And even with the timer, it's everywhere. But I try at least to make sure that I am spending devoted time in prayer each day. Take two, three, five minutes. Don't pray about anything. Don't ask anything. But just reflect on God's goodness and his greatness. And just spend time worshiping him. And then as you begin to make other requests later on in the day as you pray, I think having a focus on who he is and his greatness will greatly change our attitude as we pray. So not only was it a prayer to, to recognize his greatness, we also see that the second theme is that the prayer, people often rebelled against God. Nehemiah 9, 16 and 17, it says this, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. 
They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. And here, there's this prayer, this corporate prayer. There's this recognition, God, you are so good to us. You are so great. And then we messed up so much. And recognizing their sin, the sins of their ancestors of saying, you know, God has done all these amazing things. He's led us to this point where we're receiving his law on Mount Sinai. And then all of a sudden, there's this turn and they take the gold that had been given to them really by Egypt as they, as they left the Egyptians. The Egyptians blessed them with gifts. And God had provided this escape for them. And they, they come to the wilderness and they take this gold that was given to them because of God's goodness. And they bring it to Aaron. He melts it down. He builds a calf. And then this gold that God had given them was now worshipped this calf as the one who had delivered them from slavery. Such a foolish thing. Such a foolish thing. And yet so many times we can do that as well. God has been so good. He's been so gracious to us. And we, we turn to things that are not him for fulfillment. We turn to things that are not him for satisfaction. And we think if I do this, then I will be fulfilled. If I do that, then I will find this true happiness. And yet all the while, what we need to do is, not rec- is, is to recognize that God is the ultimate source of fulfillment, that he is the ultimate source of true and genuine satisfaction and happiness. And the people had turned away from God many times, and even after he got them into the promised land, he's, uh, Nehemiah 9.30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. You have to understand that there's this constant this constant tension of rebellion returning, rebellion returning. And then finally God handed them over and they were sent away to, to exile. And now as the people are praying, it's about 150 years later, they've returned from exile. And this brings us to the last point of our message this morning. God is always faithful and merciful, even in his discipline. God is always faithful and merciful, even in his discipline. You know what? As... as Egypt, as the Israelites, they worship the golden calf, we see this. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you, uh, you in, in your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night uh, for a light for them, uh, sorry, nor the pillar of fire by night to light the way for them, the way that they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from, the mouth, from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And then later on in Nehemiah 9.28 it says, Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back from your law. So as these people are praying, they've reflected on who God was, they've recognized that they they had sinned and they rebelled against him, but now they're saying, God, you reproved us, you disciplined us, but even in your discipline, you were good and you were faithful. Even after they worshiped this golden calf, God didn't take the pillar of cloud by day, he didn't take the pillar of fire by night, he continued to feed them, he continued to guide them, their clothes didn't wear out, their feet didn't swell. Even in this time of discipline, God was constantly showing his love and his care to his people. As I was thinking about that, I had to confront a misconception that I've had with God's discipline. Growing up, I remember being at a Christian school convention and the speaker there was speaking and, and he, had, um, he had a lack of grace when he spoke. 
And he was talking to us about God's discipline, and, and I remember he pounded this into our heads. You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, and you reap later than you sow. And that's, he just, he made sure that we knew that, that if we sinned, we were done, all right? Like you just, you were, you were done, so you just had to live this perfect life, right? And you know, hearing that about God's discipline and hearing that about God's nature, which is not true, but that's what he was teaching us, it didn't draw me closer to God. In fact, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, what it does is like I sin and I want to hide. I don't want God to come near me. I don't want him to, to chasten me and to, to be so harsh and to be so like, man, if you, if you lied once, then man, people are going to lie to you 20 times, right? If you punch that kid once, they're going to really get you and they're going to just whoop you, you know? And you just think, man, is, is that the way that God works? You know, it's not the way he works. Yes, he disciplines. And in fact, Hebrews is very clear to tell us no discipline is pleasant at the time. No discipline is pleasant at the time. I'm sure the wandering in wilderness for 40 years for the Israelites was not pleasant. And yet as they were there, God was constantly showing his love and his care for people. And so I, as we think about God's discipline, we think about the fact that he loves us. He cares for us. His punishment for us is not to drive us away from him. In fact, his punishment for us is to correct us, to bring us back to his side and to live in that fulfillment, that full life that Jesus promised in John chapter 10. His desire and discipline is always to draw us to himself. It's always in love. It's always in mercy. It's always in grace. And again, is it always easy? No, it's not. Is it something that we would like to avoid? Absolutely but his discipline is done in love. Why is it done? There's just three things about God's discipline. We understand that it's a privilege to be disciplined by him. Being disciplined by God, Hebrews tells us in 12, Hebrews 12, verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It's a privilege to be disciplined by God because when we sin and he disciplines us, it's an assurance that we are his children and that he loves us. So we have to understand that it's a privilege to be disciplined by him. There's a purpose behind God's discipline, and it's in Hebrews 10, 12, and 11. And it's really, you can see that on the screen, I believe. Um, and it will just this is that it is to help us share in his holiness and to produce in our lives the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Why does God discipline us? To make us more like himself to bring us closer to his side, to help us understand how we are supposed to live so that others can see what he is like and he can be glorified. So there's a, a purpose behind there. There are really three different types of discipline that God brings our way. Number one is corrective. We sin, he corrects us. Again, not to, not to whoop us into shape, but to bring us back and to say, hey, this path that you're on is harmful to, my, to the testimony of my name and it's also harmful for you. I want you to bring you back. It's also preventative. As a parent, if you see your child going towards a hot stove, you're probably going to raise your voice and maybe swat their hand away so that they don't touch that hot stove and hurt themselves. God's discipline is preventative. There may be something that you've been praying for. There may be, you know, a, a goal that you've been striving for and it, things just keep getting in the way. There's obstacles. And you're like, God, why isn't this working out? It could be that it's his preventative discipline. It's him saying, hey, this isn't the right path. I've got something much better for you. If you continue down this path, there will be negative things. So we need to be aware that God's uh, discipline is corrective, it's preventative, and then it's also a form of education. It's not always in a reaction to something that we have done wrong. It's not always in, in, in saying, hey, you messed up, now I'm going to correct. 
Sometimes he'll discipline us so that we can know him better. We see that in Isaiah when Isaiah sees this vision of God in the year that King Uzziah died. God refocused him on himself. In Job, as Job goes through those trials, God just refocuses Job. You know, Job had not done anything wrong. But God disciplined him. He allowed trials to come into his life. And then Job, at the end of it, says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And as we close, if you guys take a look this week, you can look into Nehemiah chapter 10. You've seen this prayer, this response of God, saying, man, you're awesome. They've, they've seen that the fact that, that, that God has reproved them, they've responded to that. But then at the end, the people get together and you see this, they make a covenant to God. They want to respond to God in the proper way. And, and really, you know, how is it that, that we properly respond to God as he shows his love to us and as he corrects us? The proper response to God is just to, to make him the priority in our lives. To recognize that anything else that we focus our attention on is worthless compared to him. To make him that priority. And if we make him that priority, we will be drawn closer to him. We will trust him and we will understand and know that his love for us never fails. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to thank you for this morning. Uh, thanks for the privilege of being disciplined by you. Lord, it's never fun. It's never enjoyable, Lord, but it has a good result if we respond to it. So, Father, I just want to pray that uh, this week we would consider, Lord, that we would consider where you'd have us to serve. What is our responsibility with the gift that you have given to us? Lord, that we not only consider that, Lord, but we would just remember your greatness and your faithfulness. Lord, just, just in who you are being so amazing. And then, Lord that we would remember your love for us, that we would recognize that your discipline, uh, although not enjoyable, is to our benefit. I just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, guys.